Hello everyone and welcome back to Conservation Realist. And once again, there has been quite the interlude between episodes. And what can I say? This summer just keeps surprising me with the sheer amount of things that I need to squeeze into 24 hours in the day. Well, okay, let's say, I don't know, however many hours I sleep subtracted from 24. But I have managed to edit this episode and get it to you, so I'm really happy about that. This is episode 11, and it's a conversation with my friend Chris Johns. And brace yourselves, he does terrestrial conservation work. Um, I know we have a a sudden swift shift from marine conservation into the terrestrial realm. And... Actually, I was just thinking the other day, I don't know that I ever introduce myself in these episodes, or, or if I do, it's fairly rare. I am Dr. Tara Sayuri Witte. I'm sure you've been able to gather that by now if you've been listening along. During this gap between episodes, uh, I was invited to give a, uh, a, a talk as part of the Hatfield Marine Science Center's summer seminar series up at Oregon State University um, Unfortunately, I didn't have the time to physically go up there, but I was able to deliver the talk via Zoom. Um, I'm, I'm quite pleased with the talk. It was kind of a, a new packaging of ideas that I haven't really ever presented in that way in, in kind of the formal-ish talk platform. And um, I just posted it um, on a link to it on Substack um, earlier this week. So if you'd like to check that out, it's basically about why talking about the quote-unquote human dimensions of conservation is actually quite a misleading way of engaging with what is actually the kind of defining nature of conservation, which is humanity. Uh, So yeah, check that out if that sounds interesting. Um, So back to Mr. Chris Johns. I was looking up grant opportunities uh, for my colleagues in Myanmar for the Myanmar Coastal Conservation Lab um, several months back, uh, cruised by the National Geographic grants pages, and who should I see uh, in the photo of their their website banner but Mr. Chris Johns hiking intrepidly, intrepidly through what looks like a very damp rainforest. And so I was like, well, how about that? So I just, um, I sent him an email. It had been a while since we caught up, and so that was the genesis of this conversation. And he and I actually met in the Philippines, um, gosh, over 11 years ago. Um, It was 2012. I was finishing up my Fulbright there, uh, doing research for my dissertation. And I happened to be in Manila for the last few weeks of my time in country after being in, in much more remote field sites. And I don't know how many of you have been to Manila in April. Um, It's miserably, oppressively hot and humid. And uh, I was, you know, crashing on the futon of a very generous friend in Manila. And there was air conditioning in his apartment. Um, But I was still really agitated by the heat. And also it had been several months since I had surfed, um, despite being in a country that has beautiful waves, 
none of those waves were particularly near my field sites and I, I didn't have a board with me and I also just didn't have the time but I was feeling really antsy I really wanted to get into that ocean and um, by coincidence um, through the same friend whose apartment I was staying in my sister who'd been out in the Philippines supporting my work um, for a few months she'd been there a few weeks prior and connected with one of his friends who had this really successful travel blog and she was a surfer and so she had write-ups on her blog about different surf spots and my sister had connected us via Facebook being like hey I think you guys would get along but we'd never met in person uh, but yeah here I was some weeks later sweltering miserable in Manila uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, that, that woman has this this website that has some stuff about surfing. Maybe I could do, you know, get a bus out of town and, and hit up the closest spot. And I really enjoyed her blog. And so I sent her a message on Facebook and was like, hey, I, this is awesome. I'm going to use this information and, and get out of town. And she said, you know, I'm actually heading out of town this weekend with friends to go surfing. Like, come come join us. Uh, I'm at some event at this hotel, at this fancy hotel in Manila. Come meet me there, and we'll, we'll leave from there. And so I show up there, and she's there with one of her friends, who happens to be Mr. Chris Johns. And we both bonded uh, being uh, Americans in the Philippines, although he is of Filipino ancestry. He's a Filipino-American, and, and I am not. Um, and he's just a very gregarious easy to get to know guy and we had this kind of whirlwind um getting to know each other time of like an overnight drive to Belair, um surfing 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 hammock napping surfing sleeping surfing 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 driving back and uh hanging out a couple of times in in manila after that and i think we've only really met in person maybe once after that in hawaii and, uh, you know, those of you who work in this field internationally will know these kinds of friendships, right? <laughs> you, you meet, you have a lot in common, you get along great, and then perhaps you see each other again in two years or four years or whenever you happen to have overlapping field seasons and sites uh, or conferences or workshops. Um, a lot of his experience has been in, in Hawaii, including Maui, and I... I, I I'm really not in any particular position to, to speak on this with any kind of authority or, or particular mm, wisdom, but I, I do want to acknowledge how heartbreaking um, the, the tragic fires in, in Maui um, have been, and it's just, uh, it's, it's definitely shocking, and, and there's a lot to be said in there about mm, climate change and social justice and, and colonization. Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not someone who has sufficient expertise to even broach that here, but I, I did want to make some mention of that. I've actually spent a little bit of time um, in Hawaii myself, mainly the big island in Kauai, and that was as part of a um, a field semester abroad during summer when I was an undergraduate student and it really stuck with me um, that was really my first immersive experience in in 
nature um, from the point of view of, of learning about field work and learning about ecosystems. Um, it, honestly, really my first time camping ever. Um, my family was never got around to, to doing those kind of camping trips, my first time backpacking. And um, this kind of immersion was really life-changing for me and so important, sure, in, in helping me pursue a career in conservation but more than that really important in shaping me professionally beyond any particular field but in kind of more broadly how I see and approach situations Um, it teaches you things that you simply can't learn just in the classroom and that's one reason why I've put a lot of effort when I when I had the privilege of designing a training program for my young colleagues in Myanmar Uh, to focus a lot on getting them opportunities for immersion. And Chris similarly um, has felt that his career and life were really shaped by early opportunities at immersion in field work. So I'm really glad he speaks about that in this conversation. And this is something that will really tie in with the following episode, episode 12, which was kind of an unexpected opportunity for an interview. I was contacted by uh, a a project, which you'll learn about, which really focuses on getting young, underrepresented people out into these immersive experiences. We also talk a bit about, um, you know, both of us have kind of left the traditional career path of, of conservationists, and so we speak a little bit about that. And, you know, that departure from that path isn't necessarily permanent uh for for chris it's probably a little more permanent for me since again i'm committing a lot of my time and and intention to working with non-speaking individuals uh but it's it's i think it's useful for people to hear that there is life outside of academia there's life outside the traditional big conservation ngos Um, you can indeed work uh, in a number of interesting ways toward conservation. And we also talk about the privilege of being a witness to nature, the privilege of being a part of learning about the ecosystems and and nature in places to which you don't have any particular claim of heritage and and how that compares to being in a place where you you do feel that connection of heritage. And uh, you know what, I think I'm back to my super long introduction, so I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, we have this song from these talented young musicians in Myanmar that you hear every episode, a Somo Twin, Zian Tet and Min Min at the Green Touch, and then we'll jump into the conversation. Thank you so much for being with me. And just as a preface, I, for whatever reason, could not fall asleep last night. So I am like running on fumes today and might not make the the most sense in the world. Uh, I guess I was just so excited that I was going to talk to you today that I couldn't 
I couldn't hunker down and, and get to some sound slumber. So. That's um, <laughs> that's totally fine. I'm sorry that happened. I know how you feel. This is kind of a, I, I have I'm taking tomorrow and Friday off. Um, oh. So this is my Friday, and I am totally exhausted. Oh my gosh! Well, thank you. <laughs> but we'll we'll make the most that. of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, cool. So, uh, sorry you're exhausted, but I'm glad that we we're able to make this time to chat. Um, so I'll just dive right into it. Um, and I'm actually curious to hear your answer because I know part of it, but I, I realize I don't know that much of it. Can you share a bit about your experience with conservation and the different ways you've engaged with the field? Yeah. Um, so my start to con conservation, I kind of track all the way back to my sophomore year of high school. Um, mm -hmm when I was sort of taking environmental science classes um, and my auntie who lives in Hawaii has lived there for a long time. She sent me this um, Hawaii Youth Conservation Corps pamphlet and was like, hey, this uh, could be up your alley. You get to come to Hawaii for a whole summer. Um, and fast forward to that summer, ended up working as a team member on um, a Hawaii Youth Conservation Corps team on the island of Oahu. And it was a super formative experience for me, um, you know, kind of set the stage for really keeping culture um, and, and the human influence um, part of conservation in the picture for me at, at an early phase. And from there, I think I, I'll fast forward through these, but I worked as a team leader for Hawaii Youth Conservation Corps. Then I was um, an AmeriCorps um, intern for about a year at a large preserve on the island of Maui doing biodiversity conservation. Um, then, uh, which is where we met, Tara, um, met you in the Philippines. I spent a year in the Philippines volunteering with various um, conservation groups out there, um, NGOs, um, a little bit of work with um, biologists um, and, and scientists out there. And then from there, I started uh, my PhD um, at the University of Florida, but studying Hawaiian insects. Um, that, that work had a little bit of a conservation angle to it. And then kind of around that time, I've, I've spent a good amount of time going around the tropics and have um, become acquainted with biodiversity in different places and seen how people work to conserve it in different places. So I have kind of a real local focus on Hawaii, but then a little bit of experience kind of elsewhere in the tropics. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the Philippines, you were, you were doing some videography, right? Or am I remembering you wrong? Yeah, a little bit of videography. I had um, started to get really into photography actually before I moved to Hawaii and started working out there. But when I was working in Hawaii, I, you know, kind of realized I had this um, amazing um, uh, device to capture uh, things that I was seeing. And I happened to be in places that in, in seeing things that a lot of people don't get to see. Mm -hmm. um, and so I started falling in love with, with photography and videography there and kind of brought those two um, interests to the Philippines when I moved there. And so it's kind of using photo and video work as, you know, mostly a, a documentary and storytelling tool um, for what I was seeing out there. 
as a big part of um, my time in the Philippines, just capturing some some of that footage and imagery. That's really cool. And I love that um, you kind of mentioned how you were in a situ uh, position to see things and experience things that a lot of people don't get to. And I, I love that you recognize kind of the privilege in that and also kind of took it upon yourself to to try to share those experiences more broadly. Yeah, it's uh, I'm happy you noted the privilege aspect of it because that's certainly a part of it. Um, you know, not everybody gets a chance. I mean, speaking specifically in Hawaii, um, there are barriers to people experiencing native biodiversity, um, mostly like, uh, you know, bureaucratic barriers, but also like geographic barriers. It's just hard to get to some of these places. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, also one thing that I appreciated when you were mentioning your your experience, um, your background was also how your early experience, you, you called it formative. And that's another thing where I think kind of privilege comes in. It's just so great that these programs were available and you were able to access them um, at a pretty young age uh, to kind of get you started on, on this path. Yeah, I, um, I, I really would not be anywhere near where I'm at without the Youth Conservation Corps program. Mm -hmm. And that program is, um, I, I think it's nationwide, or I think they have chapters in like most states. But the Hawaii one, I mean, of course, I think that it's, <laughs> it's special, but I really, I, <laughs> I really do think that it's, it's unique. I mean, because they're taking like a lot of, um, local youth, um, many of which are native Hawaiian, um, and acquainting them with, um, you know, native biodiversity in a way that's going to like land them a job, which is mm. important in Hawaii. Um, so that I have nothing but, um, praise to, to say for that program. That's so cool. And you'd mentioned that, having so much of your early experience be based in Hawaii was a good way to see the link and the importance between culture and human influence and conservation. Um, maybe um, in addition to that, or kind of elaborating on that more, what are some lessons from your experiences in conservation that have really stuck with you over the years? Um, I think that Looking across my um, experience and having the great um, fortune to kind of see a lot of different natural landscapes, mostly terrestrial um, around the tropics, I think the biggest thing that's kind of stood out to me is that, you know, it's true, the natural world is really incredible. And it's also true that it's changing um, mm -hmm. quickly. Um, and an addendum to that is that the reasons for that change are, are super complex and hard to understand. Mm -hmm. um, it, and just kind of, you know, having, um, I think uh, throughout my work, I've just really had that, the, those ideas like crystallize and realize for me in my mind. It's like abstract, you know, to, to hear for a lot of people that like, 
nature's great or, or, you know, it's changing or, you know, we need to protect it. And I think like seeing it with my own two eyes is, um, yeah, that that's probably the greatest lesson that I could have taken away from my experience. Mm, totally. And I, I resonate with that, uh, probably more on the Marine counterpart, just the landscapes that I was able to, or the seascapes rather, that I was able to witness, you know, as a college student studying abroad and, and visiting different field sites. Um, and being able to revisit some of them over the years um, and, and just kind of at first in an abstract way of being like, oh, I'm not, I'm not seeing as much as I, as I used to see, or, you know, mm. it just doesn't seem as, as vibrant as places I went to 10 years ago. And sure, maybe some of that was, it seemed more bright and shiny because I was less experienced and younger, <laughs> but, you know, over time, it's just kind of this very sobering realization that no, these, these things have changed and it's not just in one place or a few places. It's, it's really kind of the norm now. Um, and uh, I think that's, I know that's a source of kind of despair for a lot of people working in this field. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I I'm glad that you um, shared your experience here because I, I think that like one, one reason why like it's so important, I think for me to like realize this is that like I can have conviction around like making that statement to others that like mm -hmm. the natural world is important and it's changing. Um, because I feel like, you know, there's like a, a mismatch sometimes in between like what people that don't work like closely with the land um, and people that do work closely with the land, like how, how close that connection and understanding and sensitivity can be to like a place. Mm. Um, I feel like people um, who, who don't spend a lot of time with particular places um, like natural landscapes can ask the question like, well, how do you know? Or like, are you sure? <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. a big play. It's a big world out there. It's abstract in other people's minds, but for people that get to spend a lot of time in one place and observing it, it's like, oh yeah, it's pretty apparent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, some of, I think my earliest and, and most memorable teachers of that were, you know, people who I interviewed once my research started including interviews, you know, talking to, to fishers and hearing them say, you know, in the Philippines, like, oh, the, there used to be a very clear transition season between the, the two monsoon seasons, the Amihan and Habagat. It's pretty reliable time to go fishing with good weather, calm waters, and, and that's disappearing, for example. Mm. And, you know, these are people who are living the realities of, of a changing climate. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. well, others who, who are much more privileged and much more removed from that direct experience and direct dependence on natural resources are playing it like it's a game, like it's something that's up for debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And I, I like what you said about having conviction and kind of um, being able to be confident in, in what you're observing and in the importance of protecting nature and, and protecting the environment. And We'll probably come back to this in a little bit when once I ask you more about your your current work. But I think, at least for me, sometimes it's been hard to 
strongly promote biodiversity conservation as an urgent matter when there's so many other very urgent matters that are affecting humans, uh, in some cases, in many cases, more severely, perhaps, um, and more dramatically. Um, you know, you, you, like, when you start talking about biodiversity conservation, I think people tend to think of like pandas or dolphins. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's, there's people out there, you know, dealing with famine and disease and, and war. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I think there definitely can be a little bit of a struggle to hold firm to, to the, the belief, um, the understanding that nature is integrated in, in human well-being, even if it's not as, as obvious as, as some of these, these other more, what should I say, more obviously catastrophic impact <clears throat> on human lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree with that point as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but rewinding a little bit. Uh, so I love telling people the story of how we met. I don't know if you remember it exactly, but it was basically a, a very rushed surf getaway from Manila <laughs> to, um, where did we go? Uh, Balear, I think. Balear, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was through a kind of a just funny circumstantial web of mutual acquaintances and friends. Um, but uh, as you mentioned, you had been in the Philippines, you know, tagging along or well, maybe tagging along as a dismissive way, <laughs> visiting with different projects and, and, you know, taking video of it, documenting it. Um, I'd really love to hear a bit about what that experience was like for you, in addition to learning more about nature and the kind of work people are doing for nature in the Philippines, um, also that kind of connection to your roots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you, I think you nailed it. I was certainly mm -hmm. mostly tagging along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, um, carrying my own things and mm -hmm. trying to be as helpful as possible um, with, for example, like data collection on bird transects, but um, mostly there to, to um, learn, um, which I'm really grateful to all the people that had me along for that. Um, and I think I'll just pause on, on that point and say mm -hmm. that um, all the people that um, I was able to to spend time with were really excited to share their work um, with an outsider. Um, so I, you know, I didn't always feel like I was um, mostly like uh, taking from the experience. I do think that there was, um, yeah, a little bit of shared experience there. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. But so coming, um, I had left working in conservation in Hawaii and then immediately went off to this year in the Philippines. Um, and the reason that I had went was um, while I was working in Hawaii, I, you know, I got this like really strong appreciation for um, how native Hawaiians um, think about and care for um their their natural environments um there's also the story there in hawaii of like how that connection you know has been severed um through almost losing the language um there, there's a lot of reasons why that connection is like weakened over time but it's something that where there, there's been this like renaissance of like 
Hawaiian native Hawaiians becoming reconnected um, to to their native biodiversity, and being around that, um, it was it made it really clear to me that um, for these people, nature was their home, and nothing's more important than home. Mm-hmm. Um, nature was their identity, and nothing's more important than identity. Um, they're all kind of like wrapped into the same thing. And, and in that way, like it was the easiest, I mean, I'm, um, maybe easy is not the right word, but it, for lack of a better term, like it was the easiest place in the world to like, you know, quote unquote, like convince a populace that like it's worth it to protect native biodiversity. Mm. Um, and, and it, it was just also um, really inspiring to like see that connection um, and be around those people. Um, at the same time, while I was there, I, you know, I'm not from Hawaii. I have a lot of connections and like some roots in Hawaii, but I'm, I'm not native Hawaiian. Um, and I always felt this kind of like little bit of separation between like, you know, just how much I could care um, about that place and conserving it. Um, next to like a native Hawaiian mm-hmm. um, where like caring about that landscape is like existential um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like in a deeper way. Um, and, you know, that, that brought up the question in my mind, like, well, like, is there a place like where I could care um, that much uh, about um, in that same kind of way? And my, my family's from the Philippines. And so that was kind of the, the logical like um, point of exploration to try to get to is like, go back to the Philippines. And mm-hmm. I know nothing of the place um, aside from like how I've been going there as a kid. I know nothing about the biodiversity. Like, is that something that I can learn about um, and learn about the people who are doing that work um, and the people that depend on those natural landscapes. And that was, you know, I, I had the experience that year of kind of going all over the country and working with all different kinds of people. Um, of course, uh, related to like my initial pursuit, like the, I had a lot of ex- an also formative experience, like working with um, indigenous people like across mm-hmm. the archipelago. Um, and I, I think, um, I think I've probably mentioned this to you before, but I, you know, my experience was a little, it's challenging. It was challenging in the Philippines um, because that place is in a little bit of a different place than Hawaii when it comes to conservation. Um, And not to say like Hawaii has a lot to be worried about (laughs) when it comes to conservation. Um, Like they've got, you know, every problem in the world. Um, Looking at the Philippines, I found that to be a little bit more challenging of a, a, a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I felt that because I did have that kind of deep connection to it, but that's, you know, I'm still honestly like processing how I feel about biodiversity in the Philippines um, and, and conservation there and, and just generally like the natural environment and what's going to happen to it. Um, and, and my relationship to that work. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's a little bit complex. Totally. I mean, these are, these are not things that have easy answers. Um, but I, uh, I really resonate with what you're saying because I just got back from a trip visiting family in Japan 
and oh. was not centered on conservation at all. But uh, you know, I we moved from there when I was six, and it was supposed to be a temporary move. And my dad, my dad was Irish, so we, we're not American. We I never felt really American, but also not particularly Japanese or Irish, just this in between. Mm -hmm. And as you know, most of my research has been in other countries like no to which i have no tie uh, in terms of mm -hmm. my ancestry like similar mm -hmm. i guess to your experience in hawaii and it is kind of this um you want to be really sensitive to what role you play what especially mm -hmm. when you're working alongside people who are actually from that area and do have that deeper tie yes um, and i uh yeah i've i've totally struggled with I feel passionately about this, but like there has, you know, there has to be boundaries and, you know, I, it's at a certain point, it's not for outsiders like me to say how, how something goes. Um, and so kind of trying to define my professional role in a way that's respectful and, and, <laughs> and doesn't kind of reek of a, a privileged neocolonial attitude um, has been a, kind of an ongoing calibration. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And yeah, I, I appreciate that aspect of your career. Yeah, but um, I mean, fair enough to you, like feeling like conservation seems tougher in the Philippines. I mean, not that I have an, any experience in Hawaii, but there are a lot of a lot of strengths in the Philippines, but definitely a lot of obstacles. And um, you you might well know this. It's one of the most dangerous countries in the world to be an environmental activist, um, and uh, so it's it's amazing that you were able to go there and and have that experience. You um, getting to know your your um, ancestral home, let's say, <laughs> in in a more deep way, and, and again in a way that not many people get to see it. Yeah, I, I'll say that I'm thankful for the experience because. I mean, that archipelago is, it's incredible. Um, like mm -hmm. both land and marine um, and human culture. Like it's just, it's so, so special. Um, yeah. And it's also so <laughs> threatened. All of those things are so threatened. Um, and it, you know, there's not enough, resources to um to work on those things um you know mm -hmm. back to our earlier point in this conversation like there's there's a lot of larger or you know more um uh visible close acute problems right. to, to work on exactly exactly um so another thing i'm curious to hear a little more about and we you touched on this a little when we caught up some weeks ago, but um, you aren't working in a full-time conservation job anymore. Um, so I'd love to hear more about kind of what you're doing now and your decision to to kind of cast your net a bit wider than than the conservation field. Uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm glad you asked this question because it's I, I always appreciate the opportunity to try to figure out how I got here. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I mentioned how I had a 
camera in Hawaii, essentially. I kind of um, grew interested in like documenting what I was seeing. Um, and like for the purpose of like sharing it with others so that they could care. Um, like I, I did for the people that I was working with did. Um, that those media kind of continued to grow throughout my PhD. I continued to shoot photographs of my research, um, ended up making um, a video. And like around that time, you know, like starting to get a little bit more acquainted with um, the field of science communication. Mm -hmm. um, and from there broadening out into like, um, related fields, um, fields that like, you know, are, uh, that, that, um, science communication is a subset of so like marketing communications, mm -hmm. um, or user experience or, um, you know, general creative work. Um, there's, I kind of use like science communication to like jump off into the world that I'm in now, which is a little bit broader than, um, you know, helping people care about nature through media. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of do that exact same thing um, right now, but a little bit broader um, working for um, like on behalf of science, essentially. So science initiatives. So helping people um, improve like public understanding and support of science essentially through media. Um, and so the company that I work for now um, is called RTI International and we're a federal contractor and we work with um, every government agency under the sun. Um, <laughs> so like everybody from like DOD to EPA um, to CDC, NIH. And um, I work in our communications division. And so we service government clients um, and usually like, you know, government science initiatives um, with communications um, broadly, but that that includes um, like strategy, that includes like user experience and, and user interface design, digital product development, like classic traditional marketing and communications mm -hmm. campaigns, um, video production, kind of like every tool you could have to like communicate a message to somebody and influence or persuade um, their behavior or their attitudes on a certain belief, we do that um, for government clients. That's really cool. Yeah, I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> you must be learning a lot. Yeah, um, it's, I've learned a lot and I've learned a lot about, um, you know, how to talk about science and how to how to communicate with with members of the public or, or any um, general audience um, and try to get them to do x y and z or feel x y and z um, we use a lot of the same tools as the advertising world mm. um, and you know the, another name for this field um, is social marketing right um, so it's it's a little interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of power that you wield <laughs> in that world and responsibility. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, like with, if you believe in, in the work of our clients, um, we have budgets that support really great, um, our great work for great causes. Yeah. 
Oh, that's a nice position to be in, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is really nice. And I, one of my, you know, a lot of the products that I support right now are, are government public health initiatives. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I would love to turn our, um, you know, powers upon is, you know, topics related to the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and in conservation, of course, too, that's been a little bit of a harder um I guess a uh, pool of funding to locate, right? <laughs> um, but it is still a, a love of mine, and I, I really think that like the tools that this organization has and my colleagues have could really um, do something special with media around the environment. Yeah, I mean, I I love that you. I love so much about this, but I love that you recognize the, the power and the responsibility. Um, I. Um, I had this thought, not particularly profound, but new to me in my head. Um, I think I was listening to a podcast about misinformation campaigns and um, kind of it struck me. We often hear the phrase history is written by the victors, mm. but it's also true that those who are writing the history as it happens, those who control the narrative, are also more likely to be the victors. Uh, so and I think that's where we yes. are these days with social media being so prevalent uh, is, you know, in the scramble to control a narrative, um, we're really seeing a, a kind of a, a power struggle. Uh, but I trust you. So <laughs> you're one person who, who uh, I'm not worried about having having kind of access to that kind of those kind of resources and power. <laughs> well, I, I totally hear you. And I, I think that um, what I would like to do um, is be like what I, what I aspire to do in my position is like be as like narrow with audience and like surgical as I can with like a cause, like a, mm. a local cause and like messaging. Um, like, I, I think that, you know, I mean, TBD on whether that happens, it kind of takes a lot to like be that um, like obsessed and dedicated uh, in focus <laughs> um, with, with, you know, projects because of, I don't know, all, all the time people are like, we, the audience is everybody, you know. Oh, <laughs> but I, I guess I'm saying that I, I think there's a little bit more safety in like being, um, or at least for me, um, not working too much in like the big like nationwide campaigns and like focusing like you know where you can really clearly see like the impact of mm -hmm. um, the input that you're having. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the direction. I I relate most to, and I, I think that most people mm. would find it easy to relate to is, I guess the, the way of describing it would be relatively small, actionable steps. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you feel like you are achieving something concrete uh, and also laying the foundation for, for further steps along the way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, you know, really wishing you could wanting wanting to take this more in a, a conservation direction um is there anything in particular that you've learned from your current work that you would love to see implemented more in the conservation field 
Um, I mean, I, I think just generally like the powers of marketing communications, mm-hmm. um, like an understanding and, and, and like I use that term broadly to encompass like so many different things. Um, I, I would also, I mean, I would say that like, it's important for like conservation to like realize like the, like the vast contribution that like the professionals with those skills and that mm-hmm. like kind of mindset, um, can achieve. And I would also say at the same time, like it's important to know what it can't do too. um, mm-hmm. conservation resources, like being limited, um, you know, like it's, uh, it's an investment, um, that has some risk in it to, to, you know, try to, um, precipitate change in the world through marketing and communications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there something you learned about communications and marketing that surprised you or that you, you hadn't really thought of before you were, you started working with RTI international? I'm trying to think, I mean, I would say that it's, there's a lot of people that like work in marketing and communications mm-hmm. and there's like a vast range of like effectiveness. It's really hard yeah. to pin down um, like impact. Um, and it's not, you know, tied to like the amount of money you spend, like look at like any Coca-Cola ad you see, like, you know, there's a chance that like it convinced like some portion of the population to execute like the desired behavior, um, but not always. And there's, you know, a million other like less effective brands behind that. Um, And so I, I think that um, coming to RTI, like it it became a little bit clearer to me that, um, or at least this is my, my opinion, like Mm -hmm. marketing and communications, like the domain itself, like doesn't, um, it's not something that like always produces like gold. Like you have to have like, like talent and like creative ideas and like the space to like, you know, think and do um, to, to achieve what you want to achieve. And that's, that's the way I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly seen plenty of what seemed to me to be, really poorly thought out campaign yeah. <laughs> for conservation. But like there was this one, I was just talking about this with someone. Um, I was reading like Bon Appetit magazine. My brother collects them. And there was an ad, like a tourism ad for Georgia, which as you know, the state abbreviation is capital G-A. Mm-hmm. And so it, it went, I mean, this is all written out, right? Because it's a magazine. It said, ready, set, ga. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he said, gah. Gah, yeah. Gah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I mean, yeah. That's, yes. that's not the most like <laughs> pertinent example, but it's it's the one that's on my mind. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a great example because it's like, you know, as, as consumers who are like inundated with marketing and advertising all the time, like, and probably just um, like instinctually as, um, you know, human beings, like our bullshit detectors are like pretty good um, (laughs) when it comes to like this kind of stuff. And, um, but that doesn't mean that like, you know, fixing it is um, simple. Um, But that like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's, um, 
it's really hard to do this work extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, most people are not effective at um, what they're, what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's kind of why I, I think that it's, it's really important to like, of course, engage with audiences like throughout the creation process, but also like, like try to like bring people from like end audiences, like end users and real people like into the creative process. Um, yeah, because, you know, like we can, like any field, we can kind of get sucked into like how we're, how the field says we should do stuff and, you know, processes that don't really fit yeah (laughs) rush things (laughs) that happens all the time well yeah and I mean I'm I'm glad that you're in a position now where a lot of the projects you work on have a a generous budget although you mentioned the conservation budgets are a little harder to locate Um, I found that when I do interact with comm communications teams in my work um, they have all sorts of fantastic ideas but they're always kind of hitting up against the fact that their work is often seen as an afterthought. I mean, as in terms of, you know, engaging with donors and making like flashy two page pamphlets or whatever, like, you know, that's, that's where I think they're well supported. But a lot of these, um, these folks want to actually be more directly involved in the projects themselves in the on the ground marketing. Mm-hmm to stakeholders. And um, unfortunately, it is often kind of seen as an afterthought or, or a luxury. Um, so that, I, you know, all those great ideas just aren't afforded the resources they need to actually be tested out in any kind of useful way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's, um, it's really hard to draw a circle around like, or like put marketing and communications like in a bucket in a silo that like mm-hmm. doesn't touch anything else like you know the if you're really trying to like convince somebody to do something like it's it you can't be limited to like the tools in the field of communications mm-hmm. um there you know you have to consider like everything else every other possible interaction that you can have with this person to change their opinion or this audience to mm-hmm. change their behavior um but yes budgets are a, a big challenge um but yeah also being an afterthought yeah and you you mentioned a little bit kind of you know the ideal is having a collaborative process with your audience and not just trying to impose something upon them that someone somewhere thought was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that <laughs> you're able to do? You know, kind of go through, you know, this human centered design process um, in your work or is it kind of more of a rare luxury? It, it is. Um, that, I mean, that's one thing I love about RTI is that's um, a big, um, uh, you know, a foundation or a big part of our foundation is doing, you know, participatory research, co-creation, mm-hmm. human-centered design. Um, and, and we aspire to do that work. And we, and we do, um, you know, those exercises often, or we use those frameworks often. Um, but for me, I mean, those, I, I think we've, you know, 
it's it's hard to reach the full potential of like what that relationship can be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I speak about this mostly from the um, creative side of the house, like creative, like producing um, creative media, graphic design, photography, video, um, animation, whatever. There are certain parts of that process where um, it's good to have the opinion of others and the input of others, the inspiration from others. And then there are times when like, you got to be the expert and like make, you know, the best decision or move it to the next phase. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for us, um, because we work on so many different types of, um, uh, you know, products, big, small range in topics, long time period, short time period, it's really hard to like, you know, know when the best times are to like engage audiences oh, and what yeah. to ask them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, oh, there's a car. Can <laughs> yeah, I can. No, no worries. <laughs> we can, we can, um, oh, there, it's off. <laughs> yeah, it's off. <laughs> uh, and then there's a train coming by. At least it's all happening We're at good. the same time. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Yeah, I think kind of similar to to what we were saying about communications being treated as almost an afterthought is, um, I think, at least in terms of talking points, everyone's happy to agree, like in their keynote speeches or whatever, that these participatory processes are important. But when it comes to actually making space for those processes throughout like a project timeline, Mm -hmm. it's a very different Mm -hmm. story. And uh, it sounds like that's that's something you can relate to. Yeah, and it's really hard to plan around those things because ultimately, you know, like it, fully engaged in that process, like it it changes the process <laughs> right. a little bit. And so it's really hard to, you know, put a plan together, put a timeline together, put a budget together for, for that type of relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally, totally relate to that. Um, but taking a taking a kind of a step back, now that you have, you know, spread your wings and, and entered this field that's got a bit of a more broad purview than, than conservation uh, on its own, would you would you ever go back to focusing on the conservation sector? Hmm. Um, yes, I mean, I would. I think. I I will always have an interest in like working in conservation, like as, you know, somebody in the field, that's always something that will sound interesting to me. Who knows Mm. how, how it would work out, but I would love that. Um, And it, when it comes to like more of the current field that I'm in and like, you know, turning that to conservation, you know, I still maintain um, some media related projects focused on conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty dedicated to like just like doing Hawaii stuff these days. Mm-hmm. Um, just because that's kind of where I have, you know, that relationship and it's where I'm most interested. And I have all of my like perspectives and skills and abilities like come from producing media about conservation in Hawaii. So that kind of just want to focus on doing that um but yeah I, I think you know 
those are the only two avenues that I can think of to like get mm-hmm. back into conservation. But I, I would, I would love to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would, it would be to the field's benefit for sure to have more of you. Um, and so on a related note, uh, I'd already been thinking about getting in touch with you to, to chat with for this podcast. Um, a, because I enjoy talking with you, B, because it had been a long time, and C, I have very little representation from people with any kind of terrestrial background. Um, <laughs> and then what really prompted me to get in touch was I was looking up grants, um, grant possibilities for the team I work with in Myanmar, and I was on the National Geographic grants website, and there you were, <laughs> like featured in the, in the photo banner. And, you know, when, when people hear that I've worked in conservation, I think it evokes a certain image in their head. Um, and I won't lie, it's definitely an image I had of my future self at some point many, many years ago, the kind of mm. National Geographic adventurer saving the world through intrepid outings and expeditions <laughs> and discoveries. Um, you know, it's an image, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how this image reflects what it's actually like to to pursue this as a career. And, you know, you've you've experienced part of it, right? You're on the website, literally. Um, <laughs> but maybe put that into kind of a, a bit of context with, you know, with the reality you've experienced. Yeah, um, I I think that, you know, Nat Geo is like, they're a, you know, content marketing organization. Um, and one who's like mission, I, I really value helping people um, form connections with the natural world. Um, and they have to kind of sell that image, that content, they have to have like engaging content um, for readers. And they've found one way to do that, which is through the brand that they currently have. Um, which is all the things that you mentioned, like intrepid expedition discoveries, things. Um, And I mean, of course that doesn't like map um, (laughs) one-to-one with how (laughs) conservation or or generally science um, is done. Like it's not a one-to-one map of like, um, even like uh, intellectual merit or impact. Sometimes, I mean, like, I, there's a plenty of like really um, incredible, like, scientific and, and um, like expedition based work that Nat- National Geographic has like been a huge part of. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, both conservation and generally science work that just, you know, isn't part of the, um, you know, visual uh, marketing that National Geographic is doing. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of feel different ways about it. Like I I appreciate what they do. Um, but at the same time, like it's, um, you know, it's, it's only one piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I fully, (laughs) fully relate with that. And, um, I, I do think that, I don't know, it's hard. I feel like I want a wider, acceptance or acknowledgement of kind of the the on the ground work and the mm. human connections and the um 
the nuance that goes into it, but um, those those aren't things that tend to be particularly eye catching. So, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> trying to sell can... the brand and promote promote these great projects, you, you gotta gotta stick with what what catches attention. <laughs> right, right, which is you know a, a a story that's being felt like across science right now, um, and you know, because this is, it's a, a marketing initiative, um, you know, it's based around storytelling. Um, but I'll also say that like, you know, National Geographic, um, when it comes to like visual storytelling about, you know, discovery, um, nature, science, um, they really are, I think, on, on like the cutting edge of like, Mm. visual um documentation um as well as like the, like their form of content which is like long form story and I, i'm really thinking about like the magazine here mm -hmm. which is like you know the the hallmark of, right. of their brand um but you know they're they're trying to push that boundary constantly and their people you know the people that write and shoot for them are, are trying to push that boundary as well. And, um, you know, it, it may just be that, you know, these other projects that are equally worthy of attention, just like haven't found the right, like people to, to tell those stories yet in, in, in that, um, in that way. Yeah, no, I, I like that perspective. Cool. Well, that's, that's the end of the questions, Chris. Um, Thanks so much. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Thank you for having me. And I, I love what you're doing here. Um, and yeah, the questions were, were great. It's always nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's nice to catch up. And um, I really appreciated having a catch up call with you round two, where I got to dig a little deeper into to what you're up to. Anytime. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, hopefully it won't be so long before we catch up again. And uh, yeah, good luck with uh, with all of the, that marketing, communications, changing the world through persuasion work you're up to. Yes, yeah, thank you. And um, you'll have to you'll have to send me updates on what you're doing. I or I've got to find a way to stay in touch with you because after our last chat it sounded like you were up to some really interesting stuff yeah of course um i think there's this thing called email email e i don't know what it is but it gives me goosebumps and i don't like it scared um yeah email all right well have a have a lovely evening and uh, thank you again okay thanks talk to you later bye Bye. Jala he, doko pajiye senko danwe na swenle, lu daro alo pyo swenze yarwe peswane, tu pyo ne apju selole. Sailor, 
ตาวายเอ็มยูเซตอปาโบเลตาบาวายเอ็มยูเซตอปาโบเลตาบาวายเอ็มยูเซตอปาโบเลตาบาวายเอ็มยูเซตอปาโบเลตาบาวายเอ